Well, thank you, uh, Peter, and uh, good morning, uh, KW Redeemer family. If you're seeing on your screens uh, the name Paul Dunk, that's because uh, I had to use uh, Pastor Paul's uh, login to, uh, to be able to set up our Zoom service. Uh, for those of you new to the, our church, uh, uh, my name is Rick Limus, and I'm one of the elders of uh, KW Redeemer. We're going to uh, share a message from God's Word this morning. Um, as we've been reminded this week with uh, Hurricane Laura coming through uh, the state's uh, sudden destruction causes great loss, loss of lives and property. Uh, it's a terrible thing uh, to behold. I want to share with you a, a few images. I'm sure many of you have seen uh, videos of the uh, tremendous ammonium nitrate explosion that happened in the port of Beirut a few weeks ago. The explosion flattened nearby buildings and caused damage within a radius of 10 kilometers. Nearly 200 people died and 300,000 people were left homeless. I would encourage you to support humanitarian work to help the people of Lebanon. Back in the 1980s, there were a number of infamous disasters that changed the course of history. In December 1984, a midnight release of deadly methyl isocyanate gas from a pesticide factory in Bhopal, India killed thousands by suffocation and injured more than half a million people in the region. In January 1986, millions of Americans watching their television screens saw the Challenger space shuttle explode shortly after launch, killing all seven on board. And a few months later, in April 1986, only the people in the immediate vicinity of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant knew about the explosion of reactor number four. But within a few weeks, dozens of power plant workers and firefighters had died of radiation exposure. Thousands were sick. All of Northern Europe had been affected by the radiation fallout. And 300,000 people were evacuated from this region in Northern Ukraine and have not been allowed to return in the 35 years since this tragedy. There have been many other disasters in the course of history, but I've mentioned these four incidents because they all have something in common. They were all preventable. In each case, there were warnings in advance and concerns expressed about the possibility of a serious accident. And in each case, the people in charge did not take seriously the information given to them. They discounted it. They were sure that they knew better. The sin of human pride resulted in tremendous destruction and loss. We've been studying the book of Proverbs this summer. This week, we will consider the well-known proverb in chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Usually it's not a good practice to build a sermon around one verse because that verse might be taken out of context. The book of Proverbs, however, is written as a collection of wisdom instructions that are scattered throughout rather than contained in any particular chapter. The theme of human pride is mentioned many times in the book of Proverbs. A few examples, Proverbs 11 verse two, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 18 verse 12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. Proverbs 21, verse 24. 
Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. It's clear that Solomon, the author of these writings, wanted to drill home this message to his sons. And the Holy Spirit, who inspired the writing of this scripture, wants us to consider this message. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We live in a culture and time where pride is not necessarily seen as a negative quality. In fact, pride is encouraged. We have pride parades in many cities. We are told to be proud of our ethnic heritage, proud of our achievements at school and work, and proud of our life choices. It is certainly true that the Bible teaches us that all people are created in the image of God and are therefore to be treated with great dignity and respect. It is also true that the Bible teaches us to strive to do all of our work with excellence. We need to be careful, however, to keep a proper perspective on who we are in relation to our Creator God and who we are in relation to each other. The Bible is full of examples of men and women who lost sight of their proper place under God. In the account of the Exodus, Pharaoh experienced the terrifying power of God Almighty through nine plagues that demonstrated God's control over the elements of creation. Finally, after the tenth plague claimed the lives of all of Egypt's firstborn males, Pharaoh submitted himself to God's command to release the Israelite people from slavery. But then foolish pride caused Pharaoh to change his mind and to pursue the Israelite people. The result, further destruction as his army drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. King Nebuchadnezzar, ruler over the great Babylonian empire, a man who had witnessed the power of Israel's God when the three young Israelite men survived the fiery furnace, a man who had received sincere warnings from the prophet Daniel, still arrived at a point in his life where he surveyed his kingdom and proclaimed, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And God caused this great leader of an empire to descend into insanity so that he lived like a beast in the wild for a period of seven years before God restored him. And during the times of the early New Testament church, King Herod Agrippa wanted glory and power for himself. So he persecuted the Christian leaders who were proclaiming Jesus as their eternal king. In Acts chapter 12, we read that King Herod had opportunity to meet with a delegation from Tyre, the nearby region of Tyre and Sidon, a group of people that needed his support, and he was pleased to receive their flattering praises, the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod didn't deny it, and Herod was immediately struck down by an angel and breathed his last. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, it's very easy for us to look at the lives of others, especially godless leaders who are very full of themselves, and to shake our heads and agree that they got what they deserved. It's not so pleasant to look in the mirror and find ourselves doing the same kinds of things, seeking after the praise of others and looking down our noses at those we think are less worthy than we are. Pride isn't something we need to learn. It shows up in our hearts very early in life. One clear memory I have of my childhood years 
is related to a special occasion in Miss Steenwake's grade two class. I was honored to receive the award of a silver dollar for my very neat printing. And this is many decades before loonies were invented and a silver dollar was a big deal. But I recall that I wasn't very satisfied because another person in my class, a girl named Anita, also received a silver dollar. My seven-year-old prideful heart was telling me that it should have been only me that received this recognition. I'd like to be able to say that when I became an adult and as I grew in my walk with the Lord, uh, incidents of foolish pride disappeared from my life, but regrettably this has not been the case. I've shared this story before with our catechism students. Uh, late in my career as an engineer at the Bruce Nuclear Power Plant, I had developed specific expertise and I was often called upon to share my knowledge. On one quiet day in the office, and at that time I worked in an open office concept with a lot of other colleagues, I was having a phone conversation with an unhappy field supervisor. I had made some changes to a procedure that this person's work group used, and he didn't like the changes. They made his job a little bit harder to do. I was patiently, or so I thought, trying to explain why these changes were needed uh, to comply with government rules, but this person was not satisfied and suggested to me that I didn't know a thing about how to do this work. Well, the dragon of pride rose up in my heart. I'm sure that I yelled a snappy remark or two to put this person in his place, and then I slammed the phone down, and boy, did that feel good. But then I looked up, and I saw a dozen of my colleagues turned around in their chairs and staring at me, jaws dropped. And it took some time and effort to repair the destruction that I caused that day in terms of relationship with my tradesperson colleague and the trust of my office colleagues. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Sinful human pride, that feeling that rises in our hearts to suggest that we personally are somehow above another person, that we deserve better treatment, more recognition. It's something that we all recognize in our lives and something that we all need to guard against. There's one kind of prideful behavior in particular, in particular that I'd like us to consider, an error that can easily creep into the hearts of those who follow Christ. And that is righteous pride. The idea that we are serving God better than anyone else possibly could. There are two beloved individuals in the Bible that can help us to see what righteous pride looks like. The first is Simon Peter. As uh, Peter, as uh, Andrew shared with us, uh, Peter is a, a person that everyone loves. Everybody loves impetuous but well-meaning Peter because we can identify with him. Peter, one of Jesus' first disciples, the man who proclaimed, you are the Christ. The man who got out of the boat and walked on water towards Jesus. The man who witnessed Jesus in his glorious transfigured state. This man clearly loved his friend Jesus, but he didn't see himself clearly. In Mark chapter 14, we read that Je Jesus shares with his disciples the sobering news that they will all fall away from him during his imminent time of suffering and death. Peter boldly proclaims, even though they all fall away, I will not. Did you catch that? Peter is saying, yes, Lord, these other disciples are weaker than me. They don't love you as much as I do. And so they might fail you, but not me. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me 
three times. Peter, not even acknowledging that this is possible, carries on to say, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Later that night, Peter was forced to recognize the weakness of his own heart as he proceeded to deny Jesus three times and then saw Jesus look at him, heard the rooster crow, and remembered Jesus' words. And Peter broke down and wept. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We're introduced to our second example of righteous pride in Acts chapter 7. In verse 58, as the enraged mob begins to execute Stephen by stoning, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Well, this young man, Saul of Tarsus, not content to just be the coat check guy, begins to zealously go after these new Christians, whom he sincerely believes are teaching heresy and mocking the God of Israel by proclaiming this Jesus of Nazareth to be his son. And Saul was no ordinary guy in the crowd. As he later describes his pre-conversion self, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow, blameless, what a guy. In Acts chapter eight, Saul is on the road to Damascus to round up some more Christians. This is important work. He has papers that say so. And on that road, our Lord Jesus intervenes to literally knock Saul off of his feet and to ask him, Saul, what are you doing? Saul, now blind and helpless, is about to have his world changed. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. What about you and I? We're called to serve the Lord, and I hope that each one of us is actively trying to do that. But do we act like we have the world and our place in it all figured out? The church that represents our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is under a lot of scrutiny in today's culture, particularly in this time of pandemic and racial injustice. What image are we portraying to the world? Do we dismiss advice on how to care for each other's health and do what is right in our own eyes? Do we ignore the cries of our non-white brothers and sisters, content to think that their struggle isn't because of anything we've done? We must boldly proclaim the truth that we receive from God's holy word, but we must be careful not to use God's word to threaten or humiliate those who disagree with our understanding of what God te is teaching us. So we've established that scripture is very clear about the foolishness and the consequences of selfish pride and haughtiness. But what's the answer? In the book of Proverbs, the contrast with human pride is always humility. Proverbs 11 verse 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 15 verse 33, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29, verse 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. So the antidote to pride and arrogance is simply to be humble. Easy to do, right? Not really. 
It goes against our sinful nature. In fact, we're more likely to be prideful in our attempt to be humble. I'm sure you've all heard the expression humble bragging. As is always true in scripture, the answer to our brokenness is not to look inwards, but to look to the Lord. Our God is a creator God, not a destroyer God. Destruction is brought about by our own choices. The opposite of destruction is restoration. And our God is a God of restoration. When our ancestors fell into sin in the garden, God did not abandon his creation. He pursued us. Even as God told Adam and Eve about the consequences of the prideful choice they had made, he announced his plan of restoration. And that plan was, and still is, Jesus Christ. Jesus, though he is royalty, born of a humble virgin who was betrothed to a carpenter. Jesus, though he created the universe and all who live in it, born in a stable, surrounded by livestock, and welcomed by shepherds. Jesus, though he is holy and pure, a friend to the broken and lost, touching the unclean, healing the leper. Jesus, though he was perfectly obedient to his father and his father's law, willingly submitting himself to an illegal Jewish trial, complete with false accusations, allowing Roman soldiers to beat him and mock him, allowing himself to be nailed to a cross and to suffer the rejection of man. And worse still, to have his Father in heaven turn away from him as he bore the shame of our pride and sin. Paul, writing to the Philippian church, encourages them and us with these words. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of, the God, of God the Father. When we look at Jesus, we see the model for life that God our Father desires for us. We see Jesus looking at the lost and needy souls that were all around him and making time for them. We see him feeding the hungry, healing the sick, blessing the children, spending time with the outcasts of his day. The only people that Jesus turned away were those who did not want him because they were too full of themselves. Look at how Jesus restored his friend Peter and his persecutor Saul. In John chapter 21, we read the moving account of the conversation between the resurrected Jesus and Peter, a man aware of his failures, but still full of love for Jesus. Three times Jesus gives Peter opportunity to affirm his love for the Lord and then instructs him to take care of his sheep. When Peter begins to slip back into the habit of comparing himself with others saying, Lord, what about this man? Referring to the apostle John. 
Jesus, like a patient parent, turns Peter's head to focus back on himself, saying, never mind what will happen to John. You follow me. In Acts chapter 9, we read the rest of the story of Saul of Tarsus, who will become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Saul's world was upside down. He had been bold and full of purpose, certain of what he needed to do next. Now, blind and unable to find his way, he had to rely completely on the words of Jesus. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And Jesus sent Ananias to help him. And later he sent Barnabas to introduce the renewed Saul to the church in Jerusalem and later in Antioch. Think about how God used these two men to build his church. Peter, the impetuous fisherman, once unwilling to accept the path of suffering, afraid to acknowledge to others that he was with Jesus, now boldly proclaiming the risen Jesus to all who will listen, despite receiving beatings and imprisonment. Peter, willing to go to the home of Cornelius, the Gentile, because Jesus told him to do so in a vision. And look at the ministry of Paul. Using his training and citizenship, he was able to reason with Jewish and Greek leaders and scholars, not for personal glory, but as a means to spread the gospel far and wide, wherever the Holy Spirit led him. Friends, the restoration that Jesus accomplished in Peter and Paul is available to you and I. In fact, if you have acknowledged that you've fallen short of God's desire for your life, and if you've proclaimed that Jesus is your Savior, that restoration work is well underway. The Holy Spirit is shaping you so that you too can be used in the restoration plan that is based on the completed work of Jesus on the cross. If you're listening today and haven't yet decided what to think about this Jesus, I would invite you to contact any of the elders in the church so that we can answer your questions and help you to make Jesus the center of your life. Each one of us must set aside the foolish pride of relying on our own strength and our own wisdom. That can only result in destruction. And there's far too much destruction in our world. Let's look to Jesus and be a part of his great plan of salvation and renewal. I'll close this morning's message by reading a portion of 1 Peter chapter 5, a letter that Peter wrote near the end of his life to the suffering and persecuted church. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>